Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. So we've got the M42 Duster self-propelled anti-aircraft gun. We're staring down the barrel of a hulking mass of a tank. All I know is that that's the dangerous end of a tank, right? Who are you? I'm Brandon Burke, a producer on Generation Anthropocene. Awesome. And where are we? We are at Camp Mabry. It's in northwest Austin. There's a a lot of green space around us right now. Green space and army tanks. And army tanks. Yeah, green tanks as well. You want to, do you think it's okay to hit this army tank? Hit this army tank. Okay, this one? Yeah. That sounds like an old rusty army tank. What are we looking at right now? It's probably 12 feet tall, maybe. Large rusty tank with some stenciled letters and numbers on it and uh, a large white star painted right on the face of it. What else are we looking at? Like what's around this tank? So there's quite a few of them. And then there's some cannons behind us and some fighter jets a little further. What color are they? Mostly what you'd expect, that kind of like fatigue green, the like deep olive. Some of them are pretty rusty though. So they're they're taking on a kind of copper patina at this point. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if the army would describe them as a copper patina. That one's painted camo. Yeah, that one looks a little like, I don't know, like a children's toy paint job. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's what they, you know, it's funny you say toys. This is like some G.I. Joe shit right here, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it, They really do look like they were pieced together in the tens of thousands, so. You know what, like, the term that comes to mind for me is military industrial complex. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking about that a lot in relation to this episode. What does that term mean to you? 
all of the industry that's necessary to produce war machinery, really. I mean, the army is a huge consumer and there's a lot of things that you need if you're on a battlefield. So you have to have some factories that produce those somewhere. Yeah, right. It takes a lot of extraction and labor to make a war machine, you know, literally a war machine. It's a very industrially focused effort, you know, the winning the war effort. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny that that phrase still lives for us, you know, because for me, it goes back to World War II. That's the reason I dragged Brandon out here to Camp Mabry today is World War II. One of the things that happens right after World War II is that all of this effort and energy that's going towards building things like the tanks we're looking at suddenly gets channeled in a new direction, and it's for products. It's all the stuff we buy today, and it's kind of been that way ever since. Obviously, World War II is a major turning point in the history of the world. It's also one of the proposed start dates for the beginning of the Anthropocene. The stratigraphers who are going around the world trying to figure out when the new geologic age began will point to this period because there's just all kinds of geochemical indicators that <laughs> become widespread right after the war ends. There's obviously a whole lot of reasons for that, but one of the biggest ones can be summed up in a single word. Waste. And according to today's guest, we need to take a closer look at what happened in the post-war period in order to understand how we got to where we are today. If you look at prior to World War II, there was a major focus on recycling because it was viewed as a patriotic duty. This is Ron Ganem, A founder and CEO of Closed Loop Partners. And prior to founding Closed Loop Partners, I was a deputy commissioner for sanitation, recycling, and sustainability in New York City in the Bloomberg administration. Ron has also just written a book called Waste Free World. And it's all about our waste stream and how we need to rethink it, especially here in America. So I started off the conversation with Ron by asking him to say a little bit more about why the post-war period is so important for understanding the global waste stream. World War II enabled us to figure out how to extract natural resources at a much greater scale. And we had to figure that out because it's what enabled us to, to win the war effort. Unfortunately, once the war was over, rather than disassembling that system that was focused on extractive resources and re-engineering it to really focus on the betterment of society as opposed to just being part of a war effort, we ended up changing the messaging that we gave Americans from quality to quantity. And you can literally see this in the 1950s, the ads changed from, hey, make sure that that one thing you buy is really of top quality to, hey, make sure you're out in the suburbs with the two-car garage, the boat, the barbecue, the as, as many things as you can possibly get. That That's the way you're going to be valued in society. It's, it's where the term keeping up with the Joneses yeah. comes from. Yeah. In popular culture, actually, Mad Men did a phenomenal job of yeah. portraying the, the, the beginning of, of this era. And we, we were forewarned about how dangerous it would be for our economy and society to go down this path by two people at opposite ends of the political spectrum. So General and then President Eisenhower actually gave a very famous speech about the industrial military complex uh -huh. and that it was becoming literally an entity unto itself that had way too much influence in our society and that we had to be very careful to limit its influence. 
And then on the left, you had Rachel Carson, who wrote a very famous book called The Silent Spring that disclosed a lot of the chemicals that were originally used in World War II that now had found a home and a market as pesticides and things that were being used in, in everyday products. And what I oftentimes tell people is when you're warned by a general on the right and a biologist on the left about the same issue, take heed, you've got a problem. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a picture in your book that I'd never seen before of, it's, it's a Life magazine, I think in 1955, yeah. like this, like, leave it to Beaver, nuclear family, like yeah. throwing all this trash in the air, yeah. like, ah, <laughs> yeah. just celebrating, you know, how great yeah. it is to throw stuff away. I, I don't know, I guess maybe 2020 hindsight, but it seems so obvious to me looking back that, you know, how did we ever get away from the idea of reusing materials sort of, you know, I, I understand that World War II was a catalytic moment in terms of showing what this country was capable of at scale. And I can also understand that there were a series of people and companies who understood, actually, we can sell a lot more stuff at mm -hmm. scale if people throw it away more often. So maybe it's just a recognition of that potential to make a lot more money that was sort of catalyzed by World War II. Still, I feel like the wool got pulled over everybody's eyes. It's almost surprising that we don't didn't recognize it at the time. Yeah. Well, some people recognized it at the time and tried to warn us, but the government and industry came down very, very hard on them. The reason for this is rooted in the opportunity to make a lot more money. And the issue with that isn't so much making more money. There's nothing wrong with making more money. Like we should all have the opportunity to make more money. It's that it was an opportunity for certain industries to game the system, to make more money for themselves at the cost of larger parts of society. Yeah. And that's where capitalism started to break down. Post-1950, it wasn't okay, let's let whichever industry is best succeed or what solution is best succeed. It was what industry can most influence government in order to get the most amount of subsidies and policy in its favor that will end up winning and enriching its owners. You can agree or disagree or be a winner and loser in that system. You just can't call it capitalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So World War II is a, is a defining turning point in so many ways. But the idea of planned obsolescence has deeper roots than that. What about the history of planned obsolescence? You discussed that a little in the book. Sure. And a lot of this goes back originally to the Industrial Revolution, where in the 1800s, we started figuring out how to mass produce items. And then you had uh, certain step functions up in terms of different innovations in different industries and how they viewed scale as an opportunity. And so the, the light bulb, for instance, is a good example where the original light bulbs that were developed were much, much longer lasting than the light bulbs that actually ended up winning out. It's just that the industries that won out recognize that you can make a lot more money by making light bulbs that, while everyone views it as the most amazing innovation, seem to burn out and you got to go get a new one. And you want a new one because now you're hooked on this new innovation called light. Well, I, I could interchange the word light bulb for iPhone and, and modern consumers would know what I'm talking about is I have an iPhone. It's an amazing piece of technology. A lot of my life revolves around it. The people who design it are brilliant, except for when it comes to figuring out how to make it last longer than when their new model is about to be introduced. Yeah. And, and that's that's planned obsolescence. Now, the, and the it's issue, infuriating to cl be clear. It's infuriating. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's infuriating. Now, 
the problem with that, if you're thinking about it from an economic standpoint, is if my old iPhone just simply disappeared, maybe it's okay that they're doing a model that's based around planned obsolescence. Maybe I don't like it as the consumer, but I've got other choices if I want to not use an iPhone or go find someone else's iPhone. So planned obsolescence in and of itself isn't the issue. The issue is what do you do with the object that is now obsolete and who pays for its disposal? And that's the that's the financial issue that all of these electronics companies are quietly and very much in an underhanded way pushing off to the public. So if I throw my iPhone in the garbage and it has to go to landfill, my neighbor who may not use an iPhone, they're going to share in the cost of sending that iPhone to landfill. Apple's not going to participate in that cost. I will and my neighbors will. And and that's the problem with planned obsolescence is who ends up paying for the disposal of the product that's now um, obsolete. Well, I mean, that returns us to the core theme of everything that we're talking about here. Who's paying for waste, right? And and are we are we doing a, a, an accurate accounting of it? Right. And and that's and and the way you spur innovation and spur efficiencies in product design and in markets is by ensuring that the producer is responsible for the cost of disposal. Because when you do that, it changes their P and L, and they look at their business differently and say, "Well, we just had this huge cost come onto our books." We now need to spend R&D money figuring out either how to make the product last longer or figure out a way to collect it and reuse it. The net result is you get innovation, which is something you always want in your economy. That's what spurs efficiency and growth and jobs. And you end up significantly reducing costs on the, the municipal side of things, which enables our tax dollars to go further. And that's why this full cost accounting of waste is so critical. Say, produce whatever you want. You want to go for a planned obsolescence? No problem. You just can't push the cost of its disposal off to the public. And that type of business model where you just produce and produce and produce and pay for the disposal, pay for the disposal, pay for the disposal, it's not viable. Those those type of companies will actually go out of business. So, okay. I do want to zoom forward to today a little bit. There's there's sort of two seams I want to follow. One is I do want to get a kind of nice big global perspective of just how ugly our waste stream is today. You know, any kind of eye-popping stats of like, here's what we're throwing away. Here's just how much stuff there is. So I, I want to get into that. And I also want to get into how misperceptions are underreported or perpetrated through disinformation. And because you explore both those things in the book. So maybe let's start with the facts, state of the you know reality on the ground. How bad is our waste problem today? I'll speak about the problem in economic terms because I think that there's a lot of information already available on the issue of plastic waste as an example in oceans and and, yeah. and riverways. So everybody at this point should be at least somewhat aware of the environmental hazards of all of the waste that's out there. So let me use this opportunity to talk about the economic problems related to all that waste because the disinformation that we receive oftentimes is that waste, it's an environmental hazard, it's too bad, but it's also an outgrowth of this great capitalist system we have. And if we solve for the waste issue, that's going to come at the cost of jobs. And that's a scam, a complete scam. Let's talk about the real dollars and cents. Waste in the United States is not priced as a utility, unfortunately. Electricity and water are priced as a utility. 
So you pay for the electricity you use. I pay for the electricity I use. You pay for the water you use. I pay for the water that I use. The, the concept that we would jointly pay for our community's electrical bill or water bill is completely foreign to us and would be completely unacceptable. Yeah, there's people down the road using way more electricity than me. There's no way right. I want to cover the cost right. of their bill. Screw that. When it comes to waste, however, it's not price as a utility. In most of America, we share in the community cost of waste disposal. So mm -hmm. if you're somebody that does an amazing job recycling and your community is able to generate revenue from your household and avoid most of the disposal costs, but I say, screw all this recycling stuff. I'm just, I'm throwing it all. I don't have time for it. I'm just throwing it all in the garbage. The government is going to take some of your tax dollars to pay for the cost of sending my garbage to the landfill. And so waste, unfortunately and intentionally, has not been priced as a utility. It's been priced as a cost of the commons. Because if it was priced as a utility, people would become way more conscientious about what am I buying and what am I doing with it? And so there are certain industries that in, unfortunately and intentionally force the government to design our, our system such that the cost of waste disposal is completely not transparent to us. Okay, so let's talk about what those costs are. American cities spend about $10 billion a year disposing of waste in landfill. And that waste has an economic value of about $12 billion a year. Actually, hang on. I want to dig into that number. 10 billion. You said American cities. Is that if we take all the cities and yeah. add up their price tag? Yeah. Okay. 10 yeah. billion or so. Okay. So because waste is not priced as a utility, yeah. uh, it's priced as a cost of the commons. The, the, the cost of waste disposal is buried in our, in our tax bill. But most Americans think that garbage just disappears. Yeah. Right? You put it down and just, it just disappears. It see the cost that's embedded in their, in their tax bill. And, and people oftentimes say to me or, or reporters when they're interviewing me will say, well, you know, it, it costs $40 a ton for my city to recycle. That, that costs a lot. Like, what, why are we just subsidizing being green? And I said, well, what do you think happens if you don't recycle it? They're like, I don't I guess it I guess it goes to landfill. I said, well, well how much do you think your city pays per ton to send it to landfill? I don't know. I go, well, it costs $80 a ton. It's like, so actually, when you pay $40 a ton to recycle, you're actually saving your city $40 because the alternative is $80. And unfortunately, we've been scammed in the U.S. to think that waste disposal is free while recycling has a cost to it. And it's the exact opposite. Waste disposal is extremely expensive. So anytime you don't recycle, the government is using your tax dollars. And in the U.S., it's about $10 billion on the residential side to dispose of, of waste in landfills. Now, the commodities that are oftentimes going to landfill that could be recycled, a lot of the plastic, a lot of the aluminum, a lot of the cardboard has an economic value of about $12 billion if it were in, in the recycling stream. So that's about $20 billion a year that we literally waste. Wow. On landfills, that's 200 billion over the next 10 years. So let's think about what could we do in the United States with 200 billion dollars over the next 10 years. It's a lot of teachers. It's a lot of firemen. It's a lot of cops. It's a lot of raises for people in the military. It's a lot of health care that could be provided. But unfortunately, it's money spent on just sticking stuff in a hole. Yeah. I, I want to hear more about some of your work when you were working for New York City and some of the sort of major initiatives you tried to push. And I want to learn a little bit about where you might have run into roadblocks. Sure. Well, I'll tell you one funny and informative story about how to overcome a roadblock and another challenging story, but also how we overcame that, that roadblock. Okay. So the first was launching the curbside organics program in New York City. 
So that's a program where we gave everybody a bin who lives in a single family home or buildings, got a large container. You put your food waste in it. We collected it separately and take it to a compost. This needed the support of city council. It needed the support of unions. It needed the support of local community boards. Uh, the good thing about New York City is there's a lot of participatory government. Yeah. The bad thing about New York City is you want to get anything done. There's a lot of participatory government, right? And so I knew that if I introduced the opportunity to do a, an organics collection program simply based on the environmental opportunity of diverting all of that food waste and turning it into compost, or just on a pure economic basis of if we divert this food waste, we don't have to pay to send to landfill, it still might not succeed. There, there may be enough naysayers who don't want a different system, just want to cause challenges, whatever the reason would be, this would be a new way of doing things and it could reach some roadblocks. Mm-hmm. And so I, I learned that New York City has a full-time ratologist <laughs> on staff. Ratologist it's, being a scientist who studies and deals with rats? It, exactly. To someone who went and got a PhD in the life and times of rats. And New York City has a full-time ratologist. And so I found out about this person and I went to speak to them. And I said, if today in New York City, we put our food waste in our garbage in a bag. And because we have a very old built environment without storage for, for garbage, on, on garbage day, we, we put that, those bags out on the curb. And that's why we have a, a rat problem in New York City. You probably have rats from other parts of the country that hear about the fact that there's no containerized system in New York. We just put food waste with the garbage out on the curb and they all come here from all over for three pickings, right? Like everybody else who goes to New York, chase their dreams. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, hey, we're, we're coming. And so I asked him, what would happen if we took all of that food waste and put it in a hermetically sealed container that is on wheels that are two inches off the ground? And so, well, easy. Rats smell downward. And so if you lifted the food waste up even just two inches and had it in a hermetically sealed container that has a very thick plastic to it so they literally can't smell the food, the rat population would decrease significantly because when they can't smell food, they stop reproducing. And I said, do you want to be my partner in getting this food waste program launched in New York City? And a great guy, he was glad to be a supporter. And so one thing that I realized I could galvanize all New Yorkers around, or at least anybody who wanted to oppose the program would not oppose the program simply because of solving for this issue, was we went and said, hey, this curbside organics program, yes, it's good for the environment. Yes, it's going to reduce the cost of landfill. But most importantly, it's going to reduce the rat population in New York City. Well, so who, who was not on board with that plan? Zero opposition. Oh, really? Zero. I thought some of the restaurants were, or maybe I'm misremembering from the book. No, okay. no. Yeah. And, uh, well, so that was on the residential program. Zero opposition when presented that way. We then passed legislation that, that you're referring to that all commercial businesses in New York City by a certain year would be barred from sending food waste to landfill. That, that also got a lot of support, actually, from the restaurant industry because they recognize that it should be cheaper to take their food waste to a compost facility or anaerobic digester than to landfill. Yeah. Their, their request, which was a totally legitimate request that we built into the policy, was that the city had to be responsible for ensuring that infrastructure was built within a certain vicinity of the city and their restaurants before they should be required to adhere to the policy. So that's, I think, what you're referring to in, yeah. in the book. So that's okay. one kind of funny story of how we overcame what we saw would be a major obstacle. Any measurement on whether the rat population has gone up or down since instituting this? (laughs) We did measure 
the, the rat population in the areas in which the organics program was launched, this is going back now to 2013. And the rat population actually decreased immediately. Well, uh, I don't know what the current numbers are. I, don't, I wonder of- how the hell they measure that. I mean, it's got to be so much, you know, I guess it's any kind of census where you, you know, get a random sample, but the rats are so hidden out. Anyway, stupid yeah. question. Tell me the second story you wanted to tell me. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> Set that that first first example is just a funny story about how overcoming a, a challenge. The, the the second one is when we banned styrofoam, and styrofoam is a product that it's nearly impossible to recycle, and and if you do recycle it, there's very little market for it. You're going to lose money, and it's an environmental hazard because it's lightweight, so it floats and flies all over the place and gets in our waterway. Oh yeah, styrofoam uh, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Top to bottom, styrofoam sucks. And, and, and there's lots of alternatives, yeah. right? So it's not like you're banning styrofoam and all of a sudden people are going to be sipping water out of their hands. There's lots of alternatives. And so we decided to ban uh, styrofoam in, in New York City. And there was a lot of opposition from the styrofoam industry that got very nasty. And that was my first experience in how nasty an industry can be and how easily and effectively it can spread disinformation. What happened? So the the largest manufacturer of styrofoam is a company called Dart, and they had a massive media and PR campaign effectively attacking us and the Bloomberg administration as socialists, as a nanny state, as this isn't actually what's best for New York. This is because we're devout environmentalists and we'll do anything to protect the environment at the cost of a restaurant owner's livelihood or uh, a family's ability to, to buy the cheapest product. So it started with that. And and when that wasn't effective, they actually started a uh, fictitious New York Restaurant Association. And there was actually a legitimate New York Restaurant Association who actually stayed neutral during this whole time. But Dart actually went and created their own fictitious, quote unquote, restaurant association that they promoted to the press and community groups as representing New York restaurants. So there weren't actually any any restaurants involved in their association. But the amount of press coverage that they actually got and city council members that would quote this organization was shocking. It's, it, it went to you know, Mark Twain's quote of uh, a rumor has traveled the world twice while the truth is still tying its shoelaces. <laughs> I, I would literally get asked by community groups or city council about this restaurant association has said that this band will cost X number of jobs. And, and I would literally have to say, this is a fictitious association. There are no restaurants involved. And people would be like, this this letterhead looks really official. I, are you who's lying to me here? Yeah. And you could see how they were very practiced in just sowing a lot of confusion as opposed to coming to us and saying, we recognize that our product is a problem. We recognize it's a cost. Let's come up with a mutually beneficial plan and timeline for how to build infrastructure or solve this. Rather than doing that, they literally came up with a disinformation plan that would confuse the issue and the metrics. That is emblematic of, I think, larger examples where companies or industries may make the calculation that to spend the money confusing the public on the issue and to launch a disinformation campaign is cheaper than doing a holistic accounting of what the waste is going to be. And certainly, as soon as you say it, I mean, it's like very analogous with a, a lot of the efforts in the oil and gas industry to confuse the public about climate change, oh, you know, going back decades. Yeah. And in many cases, they've been right. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. It's cheaper for them. It, it was the right decision to pursue that disinformation campaign. It was a lot cheaper for them than actually innovating and adopting a new system. That gets back to our earlier conversation around capitalism. The fact that so many industries have been so successful in running disinformation campaigns to confuse the public about what's actually going on, it actually speaks to the heart of the point of we haven't actually been living in a capitalist system where it's a meritocracy and let the best product win. We've yeah. been living under a system that allows companies to literally disinform the public, pay politicians in order to maintain their business practices, which are oftentimes costing and hurting the public. So how did we overcome that that obstacle? The, the first story I gave around you know, overcoming the obstacle to organics by having the ratologist come to presentations with me. That's sort of a fun example. We had a great time going and talking about rats to community boards and city council members around the city. In this case, it was a very challenging experience. They were attacking me personally. They were attacking the Bloomberg administration. They were spreading a lot of misinformation. And so what we ended up doing was saying, no, let's, let's stick to the economics and go to city council members with those economics and get them to, to sign off because DART was spending a lot of money on, <laughs> on political influence. And so we calculated how much does it cost our system every year to dispose of styrofoam. And throughout the system, it costs about $10 million a year. This includes landfilling plus the contamination of our recycling and organic share. And so we started going to city council members that were, were objecting to the ban and saying, this isn't about the environment. This is about taxpayer dollars. It's going to cost the sanitation department $100 million over the next decade to manage and dispose of styrofoam. Meanwhile, there's plenty of alternatives. There's paper, there's plastic, there's aluminum. There's absolutely no reason for us to be spending this money. But if you don't want to ban styrofoam, that's your prerogative to see a council member. I just need your signature here that you support a allocation from our budget of $10 million a year for the disposal of styrofoam. That was an interesting proposition to give a city council yeah, member. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, is being asked about why isn't there enough money for playgrounds in my community? Why isn't there enough money for cops and teachers and, and healthcare? You, you present them with the situation of like, you can keep the status quo. We just need to carve out money from the budget to keep that status quo. And, and we ended up getting it passed. Yeah. Oh, congratulations on it. That's cool. Okay. So I want to spend a little bit of time and I kind of want to go through this a little bit rapid fire gun to your head. You're going to have to answer real fast because in the book, you identify uh, a lot of different sectors where you see opportunities. And, you know, if, if listeners are interested in learning more about where you're seeing opportunities and what sort of how you're framing the problem and they, they can go get the book. But what I'm going to do is go sector by sector and ask one question that just leapt out to me. Sometimes these answers are in the book. Sometimes they're not. And I want you to try and give the most succinct answer you can. Okay. So let's start with paper, forest, paper, timber, whatever. Here's a question for you. Do we use less paper or more paper today now that so much of our lives are digital? We use more because of all of the cardboard packaging related to e-commerce. I think that like 30 years ago, we could have pictured a society that has a lot less of, of, of a paper stream, but because so many things are being shipped to us now, it's- We, we use- Less office paper. Yeah. A lot more cardboard. Yeah. So we are using a lot less office paper, but we're using way more additional cardboard than we ever did. And in heart cardboard harder to recycle? No, cardboard's very valuable to recycle. Okay. 
Uh, it's easy to recycle and, and very valuable because there's a robust market for the, the cardboard. It's a lot less expensive for the e-commerce industry to manufacture using recycled cardboard than it is virgin. And if you didn't have recycled cardboard, demand would so far outstrip supply that prices of e-commerce packaging would shoot through the roof. So they have a major vested interest in seeing a healthy cardboard recycling industry. So cardboard, easy to recycle, very valuable. Okay, great. Let's go on to the next one. Food and organic waste. In your book, you talk about having sensors on food to monitor expiration dates. And part of the reason for that is because turns out the expiration dates on food are often kind of haphazard and arbitrary. It's not nearly as systematic and scientific as you'd think. How far along is that technology? Are we really going to expect like a little chip on my, you know, freaking peanut butter jar or my milk in my fridge? Yeah. So to be clear, the, the technology would be on the packaging. So think about a milk carton today. You get a used by date on that milk carton. Most people think that, and this is in the 90% range of Americans, think that that is regulated by the FDA or there's some scientific analysis that's driving that date. Neither is, is true. It's an arbitrary date developed by either the milk company or the retailer with, with the totally well-intentioned goal of trying to inform the consumer of when they think the milk might go bad. Yeah. And, I, I, and I used a lot of words there explaining that intentionally, <laughs> yeah. because that's literally how obtuse the reasoning behind those dates are. And, and it's completely well-intentioned. Yeah, no one's trying to scam anybody. Right? It's got to go from the farm to the factory and there's fridges along the way and how far out is it? You know, so whatever yeah. number it goes in there, there's a lot of guesswork along the way. It's, well it's a lot of guesswork and, and it's, and it's well-intentioned guesswork. Totally. Yeah. The fact that it's guesswork rather than an actual number from the FDA or scientifically proven is driving a lot of cost and inefficiency. And what I mean by cost is it causes a lot of retailers to throw out product that's actually totally sellable. Yeah. And it, it, it forces consumers to actually throw out a lot of product that's in their fridge that's actually still good. The challenge that a lot of companies have in giving you an accurate date is Let's say you live around the corner from the market and you go and get uh, some milk and you in two minutes are back in your apartment and put the milk in the fridge. Meanwhile, I live 40 minutes from the supermarket. It's hot outside. I was in the supermarket. My car got really hot. I got a container of milk. I get back to that car. It takes 15 minutes for the air conditioner to totally cool down the car, but it's not refrigeration temperature. So now it's 40 minutes and then I get it into my house and so on and so forth. That's a two totally different experiences that the product has gone through. And what the company's trying to do is give you the best guesstimate they can so you don't get sick, they don't get sued. The technology now exists to put a label on that milk carton that actually gives you, the consumer or the retailer, very accurate data on the actual freshness of the product. It sounds like a bunch of sensors on milk cartons sounds really expensive. It is a cost, but relative to the amount of money that retailers waste throwing out product and the amount of money households waste throwing out product that is totally edible, it's actually not a cost. It's an opportunity to actually save retailers and consumers a lot of money. Yeah. All right. Do you think we might start seeing this on our food products in the next five years? De definitely. You'll, you'll yeah. definitely see it in your food product in the next five years. It's being tested now to yeah. just work out any kinks. And and it's definitely, it's, it's a cost saver, not a cost. It's like going to a family and saying, 
if I told you every year you threw out you know, $80 worth of food that was actually completely editable, you just threw it out because the sell-by date had expired, would you pay an additional $20 for technology to be on, on products so that you don't throw that $80 away anymore? Everybody would say, of course. Yeah, That's the economic opportunity in that area, as well as throughout the entire circular economy. Let's go on to the next one, fashion. All right, this one just left out of me. There's a stat in the book that says the fashion industry, I mean, all our clothing, essentially, accounts for 10% of global carbon emissions. How the hell is that possible? 10%? That is an enormous chunk of the carbon pie. Yeah, there's a few reasons for that. So first is the two major commodities in the fashion apparel industry are you're either wearing cotton. Yeah which is a very energy intensive crop to grow and energy intensive crop to get to market because most cotton is grown in Southeast Asia or the Middle East, and then it actually needs to get to Europe or the United States. So that's one crop. The other material that's used is uh, polyester or some synthetic fabric that is made from oil. People forget that polyester and, and synthetic fabrics are petrol based. You're wear, You're literally wearing oil. And those two main commodities in the fashion industry are a lot of what drive the reason for the GHG emissions. I could talk all day about opportunities in the fashion industry because I think it's so interesting and so personal. That's a great answer. Let's go on. All right. Plastics. This is a hard one. What's more important? Investing in more sophisticated plastic recycling technology, so better sorting machines and, you know, actually doing better curbside or figuring out a way to do away with as much plastic as possible altogether. We invest in both. But if I had to choose one from both a financial returns and a environmental perspective, definitely investing in ways to deliver products without the packaging wins out. Portfolio of company of ours called Algramo, A-L-G-R-A-M-O, is one of the leading companies in the reuse packaging space. So you have your reusable Algramo container, has a chip embedded in it. You walk up to the Algramo machine on your mobile phone, you decide how much detergent do you want or cleaning product you want. You no longer need to buy the size that the company wants to sell you because that's the kind of generic size or have the plastic packaging that comes with it. So those reuse models that eliminate uh, plastic packaging are, are coming to market. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, it's uh, the, the thing I think that's hard to get your head around is you walk into any Target, Walmart, or any big box store, it doesn't matter. Like, the, if you were to just weigh it out by volume, how much of it is plastic? Seems like, you know, 75%. I don't know. I'm making that up. The you reason I mean? why that solution, the, the reuse solution, is going to accelerate significantly faster than people realize is what the major consumer goods companies and retailers have recognized is it's a way to reach their environmental goals and significantly increase margin. So Unilever and P&G, Walmart and Target, they're not packaging companies. They're not in the plastics business. That's all cost to them. If you're willing to go to the supermarket and stick your hand in a jar and grab a bar of Dove soap and go home with it, they've just increased their margins. We have this weird system where we put a bar of soap in a plastic package and then put it in a cardboard box and then sell it to you. It's it's all cost well, to them. Yeah. Take the bar of soap from the elements. It's supposed to be cleaning the elements off of us. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to accelerate because it's a way for um, these companies to reach their environmental goals and, and significantly reduce costs. 
Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm optimistic on that front. All right, two more. E-waste. Everybody has a garage or a closet full of a cardboard box that's got all kinds of random electronics that they no longer use. I don't understand, and this is devil's advocate simplicity, why we can't just have one massive e-waste stream that goes to some big fancy machine somewhere that chops it all up and harvests the valuable metals that are obviously inside. And why is that not possible? Or is it? A lot of people ask that question. The fact that it's not possible everywhere in America and the world is moronic because there are a lot of precious metals in that electronics, <laughs> number one. Number two is when it's not disposed of properly, it has mercury and really harmful chemicals. It's uh, moronic and shocking that there isn't more robust electronics recycling infrastructure. Good news is it's slowly but surely being built. We have a portfolio company called Retriever that just launched in Philadelphia that does household collection of your used electronics for recycling. Oh, wow. And there's companies out there like Electronic Recyclers International that's getting to be a decent scale that actually either refurbishes electronics or disassembles and recycles them. So that service and infrastructure is coming, but it needs to come a lot faster than it currently is coming. Yeah, it drives me crazy because it feels like a, nobody likes throwing his stuff away, right? And you kind of have an intuitive feeling like, I know there's yeah. valuable stuff in there that I don't understand, but, you know, how do you dig into the numbers on it? All right, last one, building an infrastructure. There's a plan before Congress right now that may or may not pass a big infrastructure plan that, you know, we'll see. Let's stay away from the politics of it. I'm wondering if that plan were to pass, if you think that there's anything that we would see driving around the United States of America, be like, wow, look at that big green project, or is it all hidden from view? Because so much of green building for me is hidden from view. It's in the, you know, I don't know much about the concrete. I don't know what kind of you know, water efficiency may be buried in a given system. You know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm wondering if it's possible if there's anything really visible that would be kind of a, you know, a, a monument to green infrastructure. It's, it's a really important question. And, and actually, Carl Safina, who's a marine biologist that teaches at SUNY Stony Brook and is a great writer, is won a MacArthur Genius Award, wrote a phenomenal op-ed about this very question in the New York Times last week. So I'd encourage your readers, look up Carl Safina, New York Times, and definitely read this op-ed because the question you're asking, it's a really critical question because this infrastructure bill, as important as it is, people should never lose sight that it requires our tax dollars, our tax dollars to be implemented. And so whatever infrastructure gets built, it better be built for our betterment, which speaks to the answer I'm going to give you, which is what should we see that's a visible part of this infrastructure? Public transportation. What we have to be careful about in this infrastructure plan is we don't need more highways. We don't need more airports. We need more public transportation. It's called public transportation for a reason. It's transport for the public. And almost every American I know, if they were given a choice, would you rather be on a clean subway or a rapid train to get you to and from work? Would you rather sit in a car in traffic? They're going to say, I'd rather have a clean and efficient subway and a very fast train to get me to work where I can relax, I can sleep, I can read my book. Unfortunately, and this gets, to, I think, a lot of the theme of our conversation, way too many of our tax dollars have gone to the automotive and the airline industry. And this isn't to say that we don't need the automotive industry and the airline industry and roads and airports. We absolutely need those things. Of course, yeah. But they've gotten a, the lion's share of the tax dollars for their infrastructure and public transportation has been shortchanged. And that's, I think, the most visible thing we should see come out of this infrastructure plan. While we should see improvements to our airports and improvements to our roadways, and I support that. 
what we really should see is massive development of public transportation for the service of the public who's funding all this infrastructure. Okay, let's land this thing. So I do want to make sure that it's clear to everybody that we're talking about the Anthropocene, right? Because one of the thought experiments that comes with the Anthropocene is pretend you could travel a million years into the future and look back into the rock record today, what would you see? And you can imagine a whole bunch of altered environments, but I think a lot of what you'd see is our waste, is how much crap we're throwing away. And I think that the question I posed at the outset about, you know, are we in late stage capitalism and do we need a whole other system that does away with the way we think about the world or do we need a system that reforms, that has uh, more accounting and more holistic and complete accounting that is true capitalism, as, as you've defined it in the conversation. I think one of the tensions around that is the urgency with which we are facing so many environmental problems, climate change chief among them, but not the only one. And, and all of those get wrapped up in this idea of the Anthropocene. So I think one of the things that I felt coming away with your book is, you know, I've, I've heard good stories before, you know, I've heard of a lot of companies that are making a sincere effort and where there's opportunity if we do do a better accounting of plastics or food and organic waste, e-waste, whatever it may be. It's so hard, I think, for people to believe that there's something really transformative, really revolutionary on the horizon that and really necessary. And I do think part of it is psychological, that we are so conditioned to throw our crap away. So I think you would probably like the chance to respond to some of that pessimism. The floor is yours. <laughs> We need a new way of thinking. What people should be excited about is that new way of thinking is going to bring tremendous innovation that's going to make our lives healthier and more convenient. I'll give you one example. Portfolio company of ours that I cover in, in my book, Home Biogas develops small-scale anaerobic digesters that go in your backyard. You can put all of your food waste into it, converts it to gas that pumps into your stove or into your barbecue. So hopefully, as home biogas systems become ubiquitous, 10, 20, 30 years from now, people will look back and say, so let me get this straight. You used to take your food waste. You used to put it in a big container. You used to wait for that one time a week when the truck would come by. You'd get up early in the morning. You'd roll it out. They would take your food waste away, use your tax dollars to then dump it in a hole. And then, you, you know, you'd roll your container, you know, back in the house. People would look at that and go, how, how dumb and antiquated is that? I mean, we just take our food waste. We put it out back in our home biogas system. And then we use it to cook on our barbecue or on our stove. And then they'll say, well, wait, so whoa, whoa, whoa. This, this gets even crazier. You mean you used to also buy what's called a propane tank for your barbecue? And if you didn't have one of those propane tanks, you couldn't barbecue? Like that can't be. I mean, you just take your food waste, put it in your digester and it makes the gas for it. So I give that by way of example, people should be super excited about thinking differently about waste because it's an opportunity to spur a lot of innovation, actually reduce a lot of costs in our households and actually make our lives way more convenient. The current system wasn't designed to maximize our financial well-being or our convenience. It was designed to maximize profits for a small select group of, of industries. Well, all right. I'm going to play devil's advocate with this for just one more minute, because I feel like there's a lot of examples out there of I could rethink how propane is being piped into my house. I could rethink how I use my iPhone, how often I buy a new one, and whether I swap it in for better electronics. I could rethink, you know, how much I go through plastics, toothbrushes, and, you know, crazy packaging. The intuitive sense is this, this nibbling around the edges, or are we doing something really revolutionary here that can deal with the problems that we're facing today? Because the scale of what we're facing today, particularly the climate issue, is for 
freaking terrifying. And so, you know, I want to believe in these in, in a collection of hopeful anecdotes. But is it enough? I, I think it will be. But there's a lot of entrenched interest. I'm somebody who's politically independent, so I feel comfortable saying there, there's a political party in the United States that is fighting fervently against all of this innovation. It's shockingly dumb. So there's challenges, but I think we should all be excited about the innovation that's taking place. And, and that innovation, it's going to require big, massive scale innovation, the ty- type of stuff that Bill Gates is putting his money and time behind. But it also is going to require behavior change at the individual level. And what I mean by that is solar is important. Wind is important. Everyone getting an electric car is important. But right now, it's actually more important. It's just getting everybody to recycle. Because that actually has a massive impact on GHG emissions and climate change. And it's something that we can all, whether you're rich, middle class, poor, suburban, urban, can do today. And we have a tendency sometimes, even in the environmental movement, to put up shiny objects and get really excited about those shiny objects. Everyone's talking about those shiny objects. But it's going to take 5, 10, 15, 20 years until that shiny object actually becomes a core part of our economy. And we tend not to work on the stuff that can be really impactful today because it's hard work. It's changing people's behavior. But but yeah. we got to do both. we got to change behavior today at the individual level, slowly but surely, and also pursue really big, game-changing technologies. Well, uh, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. Ron, thanks so much for making the time for this. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, great questions and look forward to the podcast. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. Thanks again to Ron Ganen for taking time for that conversation. Once again, his book is called The Waste-Free World, How the Circular Economy Will Take Less, Make More, and Save the Planet. Thanks also to Brandon Burke for his help with this story. And thanks so much to Lydia Fortuna for her production assistance. And thank you for listening.